0: Life expectancy in the United States has suffered its largest one year drop since the end of World War II. COVID deaths moving towards 500,000. COVID is not over, but another pandemic is sure to follow. When? No one knows, but will the U.S. be ready? Capitalism and pandemics what's coming? We need a new system, we need a new society. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We're joined today from San Francisco by K.J. No. K.J. is a peace activist. He's also a scholar on the geopolitics of Asia. He's a frequent contributor to Counterpunch and Dissident Voice and other journals. K.J. No, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. K.J., I was really happy that you could join us today because... As you know, when I originally reached out to you, I wanted to talk about the next pandemic. You know, we're still in the middle of COVID-19. There was lots of talk before this year, before 2020, that the U.S. needed to be ready for the next pandemic. I was looking at PowerPoint presentations provided by healthcare specialists, And institutions back in 2018, on the 100th anniversary of the so called Spanish flu pandemic that took the lives of 50 million people. And the entire PowerPoint is about let's get ready for the next pandemic. It's coming. And of course, a year later, it did come, and the US was completely unprepared. And so I wanted to talk about the next pandemic and what the United States could do, should do. Maybe won't do. We wanted to talk about all of that, but there are two other issues that have come up. One is the blame game. And of course, that's always been in high gear for the last year, but it went into a very weird kind of gear in the last week as the World Health Organization, the WHO investigating team, went to Wuhan, China, where we, the people of the world, first learned about COVID 19 to investigate the genesis the origin of COVID-19. There was internet rumors and a global campaign promoted first and foremost by the president of the United States, then Donald Trump, that actually the cause, the origin of COVID-19 was not only in China, but it was a lab that had an accident or there was a bioweapons accident that happened in a biological warfare lab in China, and that's why COVID spread. But in the last week or two, first the headlines were World Health Organization discounts the possibility that this came from a Chinese lab in Wuhan. And then the headlines changed in the last week. They changed in the last week, and now it's like China's not leveling with the World Health Organization. China's concealing. China's making it impossible for people to really understand China's role in COVID-19. So then I thought, okay, since we're having you as a guest, let's talk about that too. But then today, KJ, the headlines came out and it's such an extraordinary story. I wanted to also talk to you about this third important part of the story. I'm going to read a couple sentences to you. They derive from the mainstream media. The New York Times, The Washington Post. Here it is. Life expectancy in the United States fell by a full year during the first half of 2020, a monumental drop that reflects the toll of the COVID 19 pandemic. But the cause is not COVID alone. A spike in deaths from drug overdoses, heart attacks, and diseases also contributed to this dramatic drop in life expectancy in one year. The last time life expectancy at birth dropped more dramatically was during World War II. If 2020 were repeated each year for the next five years, that would constitute a trend reminiscent of an actual global war. But we are at peace. And of course, I'm using air quotes around the word peace. Black and Latino Americans were hit harder. They were hit much harder than the white population. In the six months of 2020, black Americans lost 2.7 years of life expectancy and Latinos lost 1.9 years. The actual decrease in white life expectancy was actually 0.8 years. And KJ, life expectancy at birth is considered a reliable measure of a nation's health It's not the first time that the U.S. has experienced declining life expectancy. We saw a downward trend between 2015 and 2017, then a little bit of an uptick. But anyway, these are extraordinary, extraordinary numbers. And I just wanted to start this segment by getting your take on
1: it. Yes, absolutely. This is really astounding news, and we have known that life expectancy has been dropping for certainly many subgroups, largely middle-aged and older men. But the fact that this is appearing as a global phenomenon for the United States tells us that there is something terribly wrong afoot. And as you point out, healthy life expectancy is... Is a very, very important gauge of the health of a society rather than the standard, you know, measures of GDP or other econometric measures. Really, health expectancy, especially healthy life expectancy, is the key metric that we should be watching to see whether a society is functioning properly or not.
0: Yeah, we're going to keep looking at this story, KJ. And one of the things that's quite clear is that. In addition to COVID-19, there's been this upward trend of what are called deaths of despair, that is drug overdoses, alcoholism, and suicide. I believe the number of people who died from drug overdoses during the same time period in 2020 is about 80,000, 80,000 overdose deaths. Again, that says so much about society
1: too. Absolutely. When you have uh, deaths of despair, uh, deaths from suicide, deaths from drug overdoses, and the countless excess deaths that are otherwise not categorized, but we can reasonably attribute from a kind of macro perspective to systemic problems, really structural violence, then what you're looking at is a society that is failing in very fundamental ways and a ruling class, which is waging a war against its own people.
0: I want to play an audio clip. We have two of them. They're both from the former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. He's speaking at the United Nations on September 22nd, 2020. Not so long ago, every you know, head of state has an opportunity to speak to the UN during its General Assembly opening in September of each year. Trump mounted the podium to talk about how great the United States is doing in all things, including COVID, and why China, to the extent that there's any problems in the United States or anywhere in the world, the problem is China, China, China. China's to blame. And Trump is gone. At least he's gone for now. He's no longer president. But I'm looking at other media outlets, including media outlets that were generally not favorable to Donald Trump in the United States, in Britain. The headlines fall very much in line with this non-Donald Trump or anti-Donald Trump corporate-owned media blaming China, COVID-19 pandemic, China refused to give data to WHO team. That's from the BBC, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, all of them blaming China. But let's go back and listen to Donald Trump speaking at the United Nations. I want to play the first audio clip, get your reaction, and then go to the second audio clip.
2: We are once again engaged in a great global struggle. We have waged a fierce battle against the invisible enemy, the China virus, which has claimed countless lives in 188 countries. In the United States, we launched the most aggressive mobilization since the Second World War. We rapidly produced a record supply of ventilators, creating a surplus that allowed us to share them with friends and partners all around the globe. We pioneered life saving treatments, reducing our fatality rate 85% since April.
0: KJ, that's just surreal. I mean, the guy is actually at the United Nations talking about how wonderful the United States has handled
1: its response to the China flu. Yes, it's uh, kind of surreal. And, you know, it's this bizarro upside down world where everything is inverted. I mean, let's just go back to the original situation. Part of the reason why the West has done so poorly uh, regarding the COVID pandemic has been this ideological blindness, ideological hubris. At First, it was characterized as a uniquely Chinese problem that it wasn't going to happen here. This was the Council for Foreign Relations, New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, etc. And then, concurrent with that, and this taps into Donald Trump's framing is that the western nations especially the united states with their you know transparent reporting and you know the kind of power of their academic and civil society would offer elegant solutions, you know, kind of like their own self-organizing immune system, along with, you know, the power of US uh, capitalism. And of course, we saw that that was exactly the opposite. We saw this incredible scientific illiteracy, compounded with this incredible emphasis on profits over people, and the result of this is what we see today, over 100 million people in the world infected, but in the United States alone, half a million people dead. I mean, that's a scale of death that we have not seen since, um, you know, uh, major wars.
0: Let's play a second audio clip. It's brief, but again, it it goes to this This theme, this inverted reality theme that it's all about China. It's just a few more seconds, but I want to hear Donald Trump again.
2: As we pursue this bright future, we must hold accountable the nation which unleashed this plague onto the world, China.
0: Unleashed this plague onto the world. I mean, that's what Americans are being told. China unleashed this plague. I mean, we have pandemics, we have epidemics, we have human-to-human transmission, we have transmission of viruses from animals to human and vice versa. But no, this is China unleashing the virus as if China decided to go ahead and send this virus around the world. I mean, from a point of view of just raw, naked
1: Brutal and lying false propaganda, it can't get much worse. No, it can't get much worse than that. And, you know, just to add to this, not only was the allegation that China unleashed this virus, but their $30 trillion worth of Private and government lawsuits in the United States filed against China. So, I mean, this is an incredible weaponization of a lie. But just to go over this myth, you know, just to put it to bed for once and for all the first lie is that China engineered the virus, and that has been scientifically refuted up and down, backwards and forwards. It couldn't be an engineered bioweapon or a virus because it doesn't look or act like one. This is scientific consensus in all major peer-reviewed studies. And the other question we have to ask is why would the U.S. fund an enemy weapons lab? Because we have to remember that Wuhan was a U.S. and France collaboration. It was funded by the United States. The second fallback, and this is Unfortunately, it's people, even on the progressive left, like Sam Husseini, who are saying this, who are saying that it was a naturally engineered virus. That's why it doesn't show the traces of engineering. But again, this is highly unlikely because that would take a mass project lasting at least 50 years. Random mutations are very slow, and the closest virus equivalent are a TG13 is 96% similar to COVID. So, that would be like uh, monkeys typing away randomly and suddenly coming up with Shakespeare's Hamlet. It's just not possible. Statistically, it's not possible. So, the conclusion is that it's natural, but then the fallback position to blame China was that maybe it's natural, but they captured a wild sample somewhere and they leaked it on purpose or by accident. And this, again, fails completely. This argument fails on the logic, because if it exists in nature, it's already out there. It can't be leaked out if it's already out there. Just to give you an example, just the other day, I saw a coyote in the East Bay now there are a lot of coyotes uh in the east bay that's a wild region and you you know you have these animals move around now there also happens to be a coyote in the oakland zoo or the san francisco zoo what are the probabilities that the coyote that i saw escaped from the oakland zoo as opposed to the probability that it's just one of these wild animals that's the same thing is that statistically probability what are the chances of 12 highly trained experts working with it? And now the proof shows that they weren't working with it. Let's assume that they were. What's that probability? People who are highly trained experts versus tens of millions of people all around the world who have natural zoonotic encounters that lead to this type of spillover. So it's completely absurd. But again, as you point out, this absurdity, this mendacity you know, is being weaponized in ways to attack China. You use the word zoonotic
0: just for our audience that may not be familiar with it. What are zoonotic diseases?
1: Zoonotic diseases are responsible for most of the pandemics that we have seen in human history, and it's when a virus or an infectious agent, which is spread through animals, spills over into the human population. And through some process of evolution, most of these do not have any effect, but occasionally and more and more frequently, as there's more and more human and animal contact through breeding and through destruction of natural habitats, that when this virus is transmitted to a human, it finds itself able to first sustain itself, uh, the human becomes the host, and then it Becomes also transmissible. And in the cases where this transmissibility is high and the virus itself is dangerous, then we start to approach the phenomenon that we see as epidemic or pandemic.
0: KJ, I want to come back eventually in the next few minutes to talk more about the phenomena of pandemics or epidemics that become pandemics, why they're happening with greater frequency. You know, the basic theme that I had originally talk to you about why do pandemics happen what's likely to happen coming after covid and what should the united states having learned the lessons if it can from covid what should it be doing but before we get there i want to go back to this new weird media handling of the world health organization investigative team that has gone to china to wuhan just contrast these headlines a week ago bbc headline was COVID colon WHO says extremely unlikely virus leak from lab in China. Then the most recent headline is COVID-19 pandemic. China refused to give data, that's in quotes, to World Health Organization team. So this is about the same team, the team that went to Wuhan, that worked with their Chinese counterparts. A week ago, the article that the headline tops says, It was unlikely that the expert group in its politically charged mission would be able to pinpoint the source of the pandemic in China a year after it began, but after visiting the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they have closed the lid on the controversial theory that coronavirus came from a lab leak or was made to scientists. Their search for clues also included a visit to the now famous wet market in Hunan, selling fish, meat, and live wild animals that was linked to some of the first human cases. The team says the virus may have jumped from animals to humans, but they don't have proof yet. Possible carriers include bats and pangolins, but tests so far have yet to find convincing evidence for this. Another line of investigation is whether the virus could have spread through imported frozen food the hunt for the origin will continue. And then there's some other references that possibly looking again towards Southeast Asia, not China. Then we have just five days after that headline, which seems to put the lid on it, like World Health Organization says no to the theory that this was an accident or caused from a lab in Wuhan. And now there's this suspicious, skeptical headline that makes everyone think, oh, wait, Whatever we said before, don't take it seriously because China's lying. The Chinese are doing what China always does, concealing the truth. They're not transparent. So the new headline is COVID-19 pandemic, China, quote, refused to give data to World Health Organization team. Now, they either gave the data and the team was satisfied or it wasn't. A week ago, it was satisfied. Like, what happened? What what caused this headline? Or does the headline not reflect at all what's going on inside the World Health Organization
1: team? In other words, is it completely contrived? I would say it's completely contrived. And I invite you to think about what happened uh, during the run-up to the Iraq war around the WMD. UNSCOM was tasked with finding out whether Iraq had WMD or potential WMD. And they said, you know, it's impossible. You know, just the evidence does not show that. And when that happened, they were attacked. They were eviscerated. And we see the same thing happening here. You know, once again, we have to understand that these kind of lies and propaganda have to do with a Cold War orientation of the United States towards China. There's really a kind of a psychological preparation for a casus belli, really, that they're looking for. And biological warfare or chemical warfare is used as such. And there has been this constant drumbeat propaganda that somehow China was responsible for COVID. It's responsible for the millions of deaths all over the world. Now, inside that context, if an independent scientific organization like the WHO with 17 of its most qualified experts in infectious diseases comes out and gives a clean bill of health for China, then that doesn't fit the framing that the United States and the Western powers need. So, of course, they're going to do that. So, we could know, we could, I mean, we could absolutely predict that when they wanted this investigation, if it didn't give them the results that it wanted, they will attack the who, and of course, people with no scientific expertise will spin the story and claim that the Chinese, you know, obstructed or refused to give data, destroyed the evidence, All of these claims are belied by what the researchers themselves have said on the ground. They said, you know, we had great cooperation with the Chinese researchers and shame on you, shame on the New York Times for misquoting us in this fashion.
0: I'm glad you mentioned and compared the propaganda against China here with the lying false propaganda that was drummed up by the Bush administration against Iraq, and also by Democrats, including Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, in the run-up to the 2003 US invasion of Iraq, the shock and awe invasion. That propaganda, everybody thinks now, oh, that was all a lie. They knew it was a lie. But at the time, we didn't know. KJ, I had been studying Iraq, going to Iraq. I'd first gone to Iraq right before the first Gulf War. I went several times in the late 1990s bringing medicine in violation of the UN slash US sanctions. And I had been really on top of the story. And I knew that, you know, the US led UN weapons inspectors had carried out 13,000 weapons inspections in a small country. And those weapons inspectors were not arguing that there was any vestige, certainly, of a weapons of mass destruction program by Iraq, that if there was one earlier, it was completely gone. I knew that to be the case. I was kind of routinely going on network news stations then as the leader or one of the leaders of the Answer Coalition, which was organizing the protests against the then pending war in Iraq. And I was going on almost every week, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN. Later, those of us, that small coterie of people who were anti-war voices were purged basically from cable news networks that right before the Iraq war started. But I remember MSNBC, where I was on the most, in fact, right before I was purged, I was making the argument that, Iraq does not have weapons of mass destruction. And they said, well, how do you know? And I said, well, here's the record. And I went through the last 12 years of weapons inspections and I laid out this whole dossier. And the response was, you're just an Iraqi agent. You're an agent for Saddam Hussein. You're an apologist for Saddam Hussein. And that was the last time I was on MSNBC. They had sort of turned the corner that if you made the argument that the propaganda against Iraq was in fact a lie, and the Iraqi government was also saying it was a lie, that meant that there was a convergence between your message and Saddam Hussein's message, and thus you are an apologist or an agent even of the Iraqis. And that's what's happening now with this propaganda effort against China. If you sort of tell the truth, maintain an objective faculty, and it coincides with China saying that the West is also lying, That means that you must be an agent of the Chinese foreign ministry or its propaganda arms of the Communist Party. It's this level of witch hunting.
1: Absolutely. And once again, I remind you, the Biden administration had said that it would come back to the table with international institutions and respect the science. But if you see the spin coming out, for example, from Jake Sullivan around this WHO report, Clearly, they're not respecting the science. They're clearly not respecting the WHO. Remember, Thea K. Fisher, she's a professor of epidemiology. She said, our quotes are being twisted and that their scientific work is being distorted. Despite these arguments, they're still alleging That, you know, somehow that there's something awry with this report and this investigation. Now, the key thing to understand, and this is crucial, is that we are in the middle of an epidemic and we could potentially face more epidemics. But one of the key ways of combating an epidemic is through clear, accurate scientific information. In fact, you can really think of an epidemic as a race. It's a race between accurate information and inaccurate information. And when an administration like the Trump or now the Biden administration takes the position that it is going to prioritize propaganda, lies, and political advantage, over finding the scientific truth. We are in a very, very dangerous position.
0: KJ, the World Health Organization team went to Wuhan because that's where China first learned and we, the world learned about the existence of COVID-19. But World Health Organization is exploring the possibility that COVID-19 may not have started in Wuhan or even in China. Let's talk about that for a second.
1: Yes, that's really an important finding. And uh, we're seeing more and more evidence that China may not have been the place where it originated, but simply the place that it was discovered first. Most of the arguments that it was, you know, leaked from the Wuhan lab or that, you know, started in China, they center on circumstantial evidence that erupted in Wuhan, that proximity is the problem. But there's considerable peer-reviewed studies that show that from waste samples, historical sputum samples, from antibody tests, that the virus did not originate there, but it was simply discovered there first. So, for example, you know, this was an early study, early clade analysis at Cambridge University showed that the Wuhan clades, the B clades, were descendant of European American samples. And then if we look at, you know, there's a recent article in Le Mans, which quotes the European Journal of Epidemiology that says that there was COVID in November 2019. The US CDC quotes the Clinical Infectious Diseases Journal, which says that by December 2019, 1.4% of Americans had COVID-19 antibodies. Italy's National Cancer Institute points out that there was COVID from September 2019. And there are even earlier studies that show it, you know, even earlier, Spain, Barcelona, etc. So, there's a large body of study that shows that It didn't start in China, but the Chinese found the needle in the haystack. And essentially what they did is they alerted the world in a timely and astonishingly rapid fashion. And everything that was useful to share, they shared within Days primarily the genome sequence and countries that followed that information and the NPI models non-pharmaceutical intervention models that China showed proof of concept they did not suffer. They were talking about Korea, Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore, and uh, the countries that didn't really really suffered. So what we really have to understand is that China discovered it first. It fell on the epidemiological grenade and it bought. The rest of the world time. And that time was squandered in the US and the West for ideological reasons because they wanted to attack China. And this is the tragedy of COVID. We have to learn from this and make sure this never happens again.
0: KJ, a hundred years ago, almost 103 years ago now, there was what was called the Spanish flu pandemic. That's the pandemic pandemic Well, most people learned of it probably just in the last year, but it was in 1918. It didn't start in Spain, by the way. It started in Kansas. We can talk about why they call it the Spanish flu, like the way Trump now calls COVID the China flu. But it was caused by an H1N1 influenza virus, and it contributed to the deaths of about 50 million people. That's according to the official... U.S. government, National Institutes of Health Statistics. 50 million people died in about two or three years. Many more, about 10 times more or five times more than died actually in World War I, which was the greatest loss of human life in a war ever up until that time. Since 1918, there have been three other human IAV pandemics. There was the H2N2 also called the Asian flu. That was in 1957. There was the H3N2 in 1968. That was named in popular vernacular the Hong Kong flu. And then there was the H1N1 pandemic, also known as the swine flu. That was in 2009. In addition to that, KJ, there were not pandemics. uh, And you can explain to our audience the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic. But in 2002, There was the beginning of a two-year-long SARS epidemic. There was the MERS epidemic in 2014. Anyway, when we see that just the last 20 years, SARS and MERS, they could have easily become pandemics. They didn't. And one of the other big virus outbreaks, the swine flu in 2009, was a pandemic. So at least we have four big pandemics in the last 100 years Let's talk about why pandemics are becoming more frequent, why the epidemics are becoming more frequent, and explain to the audience the difference between epidemic and pandemic. And also, if we can see the history and see the causes for the rise or the intensity or the increasing frequency of pandemics, what's likely to
1: come next? Yes, these are really important questions, Brian, and they really are about global health and whether we're going to be able to sustain ourselves as a civilization. But the first point I will make, and you're absolutely correct, is that the Spanish flu, which was the greatest pandemic that we know of in modern times, this started in Kansas, started in Haskell County, Kansas, and then it was accelerated in Camp Funston. And then these troops went to Europe. And by the time 1918 came around, it was actually a greater killer of troops than World War I itself. And as for H1N1, we estimate that that killed up to 575,000 people, over a half a million. That was first detected in San Diego at a military base, at a military hospital. And so we know that first that we are subject to these huge pandemics, and they have to do with zoonotic spillover, which is related either to factory farming, the conditions of capitalist production of animal meat, or they relate to related phenomenon, which has to do with human encroachment on animal habitat due to massive expansion. Once again, due to this capitalist need to constantly and voraciously absorb and consume and extract uh, resources from nature. So, both of these are serious threats and the lack of ability of, you know, the ruling class to understand these threats and to make reasonable measures and to always kind of throw things back on the individual or to talk about the kind of technological profit-driven solutions that will deal with this are deeply misguided.
0: And just so our audience knows the veracity of your assertions, the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, the main U.S. agency in charge of looking after the public good when it comes to disease outbreaks, in their 2018 anniversary of the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, where they are telling everyone, by the way, it's really an amazing PowerPoint. If you go to the CDC, cdc.gov forward slash flu forward slash pandemic hyphen resources, this was produced by the CDC, by the US government in 2018, saying, look, 100 years ago, the Spanish flu happened, 50 million people died, way more than died in World War One itself, that the troops themselves were the spreader of this and we have to get ready for the next epidemic or pandemic that was, again, one year before COVID. But in their CDC PowerPoint presentation, it says, the site of emergence for the Spanish flu purported is Haskell, Kansas, in the United States, just as you said. Quote, Spanish flu, close quote, it was named such not because Spain was the source, but because Spain was a non-combatant in World War I, and the other countries that were combatants refused to admit having cases. So, here you have it. It was troop movements in the case of this 1918 flu, the concentration of troops in tents, first while getting ready to go to Europe to fight in World War I. That's when they were in Kansas. Then they go to Europe. They're in close quarters, Much of the fighting was trench warfare and hand to hand combat. The different armies were infecting each other. And then, as the war ends in 1918, the pandemic doesn't end. The pandemic keeps going and going for several more years. And then you mentioned the other virus that it started in San Diego and again amongst troops. How important is the modern military and the fact that we have a standing war machine with? A 1,000 US military bases or 800, some very, very large number all over the world. Those troops go from country to country. They're in close quarters. They're not coming through visa checkpoints when they enter other countries. How important is the modern military and the modern concept of permanent war or a war machine
1: to the spread of pandemics? I think it's incredibly important. And it's one of those things that is completely obscured or erased from the picture, just as, for example, global warming is a tremendous risk to the planet, to planetary existence. But at the same time, if you look at everybody who's talking about it, they erase the effect of war and the US military itself on global greenhouse gas emissions. It's a similar kind of erasure and emission. But yes, going back to your point, once again, the largest pandemic in modern history started with US troops in Haskell County at Fort Funston. And then the most recent largest pandemic prior to COVID was the H1N1. And that started in military dependent family in San Diego was discovered at a military clinic. And then for months, the US government did nothing while it spread to all over the south of the United States and Mexico. And of course, exactly the points that you make. The military historically has been a huge vector of the transmission of disease. And we know this. There's very good studies that show this, not merely with pandemics, but simply with STDs. We know that the rise or the propagation of STDs relates to the presence of troops. You, you can do a straight line correlation between the number of troops in a city and the number of STDs. But specifically regarding viral transmission and specifically regarding transmission in this current moment, one of the things is that the United States is conducting military operations in at least 170 countries. And it has, you know, at least between 800 and 1,000 bases in these countries. And what happens is that the U.S. travels in and out through these countries without visas, uh, without going through immigration. They're immune from public health inspections or public health guidelines for the native populations. This is why we saw massive outbreaks in countries that had shut down or were able to control their COVID outbreaks. We're talking about Guam, Okinawa, we're talking about Bavaria, Germany, we're talking about South Korea. Every country where there is a significant U.S. military presence, there has been unexplicable and unexpected eruptions of COVID where the country had previously thought that this was under control. And it has to do fundamentally with the way that the US status of forces agreements are written with these countries that are hosting troops. KJ, time is running short now. I want
0: to talk about why China, and it wasn't only China, Vietnam, New Zealand, a few other countries, South Korea perhaps, why those countries succeeded and why the US has failed so miserably. Especially since we know that with globalization, with the planet becoming smaller and smaller in the sense that people are interacting with each other, the global economy such that it brings people together at a level of frequency and intensity far beyond anything that existed in the past, with the exception of troop deployments where you know there were millions of soldiers sent into battle with each other, living very much under similar conditions and then interacting with each other and becoming the vector for disease. But again I want to talk about why China succeeded, why these other countries succeeded, and what does it mean or what could it mean for the United States. The United States has a different social and economic order than China. But you know some of the countries that succeeded were also capitalist countries with capitalist governments, not like say Vietnam or China which is, you know, the communist parties in those two countries are the ruling parties. I'm looking at the Lancet medical journal The Lancet Infectious Diseases paper, China's Successful Control of COVID-19. This was published in October 2020. It's a peer-reviewed medical report. While the world is struggling to control COVID-19, China has managed to control the pandemic rapidly and effectively. How was that possible? And then the report goes on to talk about Donald Trump's ridiculous speech at the General Assembly that we played at the beginning of this. It also goes on to say, according to a July survey by the Pew Research Center, two-thirds of Americans believe that China has done a bad job dealing with COVID-19 pandemic. That's clearly not an opinion shared by the World Health Organization or other international bodies. KJ, as we start to wrap up, why did China succeed? Why did the other countries that did succeed, why did they succeed? Were they using a China model? And what does the United States
1: need to do in preparation for the next pandemic? Yes, these are really important questions. Very briefly, Brian, of course, we know that the foundation of preventing pandemics is a good public health system. And uh, public health systems, by and large, have been eviscerated in the neoliberal West, especially in the United States. So that's a basic foundation. But also, as I pointed out before, a pandemic is a race between information and disinformation. And very early in this pandemic, the United States made a commitment towards disinformation, towards unscientific propaganda and attacks and therefore that made it incapable of responding in a reasoned rational way. Just to kind of recap, you know, first the idea was that this disease was caused by Chinese political culture and that Western societies, Western supremacies would be exempt from this. Now, having stated the problem as uniquely Chinese or Chinese despotism or Chinese dirtiness or Chinese dishonesty and depravity, any response the Chinese did was then characterized as a violation of human rights. Now, what the Chinese did were very, very rational measures, that is to say, the standard non-pharmaceutical interventions that are used when you don't have a vaccine. You isolate, you test, you track, you trace, and you treat. But all of this was weaponized as kind of civil rights or human rights violations. And then having done that, it became impossible for the West and especially the United States to copy the very effective Chinese model. You know, it was impossible for them to actually admit that the Chinese had done something right. And so, by that time, you know, structural factors kicked in. The capitalist economy is never prepared for a pandemic because there's no profit in preparation or stockpiling. And the US did not have single-payer health care. Testing became impossible. And, you know, there was no Meaningful capacity to isolate people because most of the U.S. population and most of the Western population has no savings. So all of these issues became fundamental and critical. And eventually the messaging was so garbled, contradictory and inconsistent that, you know, the catastrophe was unavoidable and even to this day, you know, similar to the WMD issue, 30%, only 30% of Republican leaders say that COVID is a significant threat. This polarization, this weaponization of misinformation against China is exactly what has led to the West doing so poorly. And for me, it just underlines the point that Sinophobia is dangerous. It's dangerous in the sense that it is actually a threat uh, to the West itself.
0: No, those are excellent points, KJ. And I want to just let our audience know that KJ and myself and others are part of a larger project to fight back or push back against this endless war propaganda and demonization of China, which is not only dangerous because it leads towards war, but it makes the United States additionally vulnerable to the misinformation and disinformation that makes Americans very, very vulnerable to this kind of sort of mismanagement of disease outbreak when we know for sure that uh, disease outbreak or pandemics are part of modern life. And the organization that we're working on together, and if people want to join us, they certainly can go to the website. It's Pivot to Peace, sort of a takeoff on Pivot to Asia, which is basically a euphemism for a pivot towards confrontation and war. This is a coalition of folks, peace organizations, anti-war groups, a large participation in the Chinese American community. And the website is peacepivot.com, Dot org. So we invite all of our listeners, if you want to be part of the new peace movement against major power confrontation, against the demonization of China, which is just designed to prepare the population for conflict, if you want to push back against it, go to that website, peacepivot.org. And again, I want to thank our guest, K.J. No, K.J. No, peace activist and a scholar, on the geopolitics of Asia, a frequent contributor to counterpunch and dissident voice.
1: KJ, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian, always a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.